0: at WERU because it is a unique voice in our community. Support for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is currently facing the threat of being defunded by the new administration in Washington. WERU receives $125,000 per year. That's 25% of our budget from the CPB. Information on how to protect community and public media can be found at weru.org. Thank you for your support. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org.
1: The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk is up next.
0: Good morning. Welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is C.J. Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. So today for our show... We are going to be listening to a recording of the keynote address from MOFCA's Farmer to Farmer Conference, given on November 6th, 2016 in Northport, Maine, by Vern Grubinger. Grubinger is an extension professor and the vegetable and berry specialist at the University of Vermont. Grubinger speaks about the legacy of organic agriculture while looking back at his career of over 30 years. The recording begins with an introduction by Eric Seidman, MOFCA's organic crop specialist, And since this is a recording, we are not taking calls on today's show. So here is Vern Grubinger on the legacy of organic agriculture.
1: When I first came here, Jay Adams was the executive director of MAFCA, and he took me around and he introduced me to all the important farmers. Some of you guys are still sitting in the room. Um, And uh, he also took me around to meet extension agents and university professors and there were actually quite a few of them who were big name people who were like the big players, everyone liked them and they were friendly to organic and they did lots of good research. Um, And I'm not going to mention names because um, about half of you are too young to remember those people anyway. Um, But there were in New Hampshire and Maine and Vermont, there were all of these really big name researchers who understood organic agriculture, who were friendly to the farmers and knew the fundamentals and the principles that we worked with. It's interesting, 1986 was a long time ago, and I think all of those people are no longer here working with us as university people. They've moved on. But it's interesting, the more interesting part to me is some of the young whippersnappers who were around in 1986 and 1990 became the big names. They are now the people, the go-to people at the universities. And actually, today, we have one of those people who started work in 1990, just a couple of years after I did. Um, it was actually the year this conference, the first conference, the Farmer to Farmer Conference started, was 1990. But also that year, Vern Grubinger started to work in Vermont, and he was young. And right away, we recognized him as a friend to organic. He's a friend to everybody. They like him no matter, no matter what kind of farmer they are. Almost all farmers like Vern Grubinger. And so I feel really honored today to have Vern Grubinger again to do a keynote address for us. Um, And by the way, I remember Vern's being my favorite keynote address in all 25 of the farmer to farmers I've been to. Vern, are you ready? I'm going to turn it over to you now, although I probably could talk all morning. (laughs) Thank you, Vern, for coming.
2: going to test out this microphone. Maybe I'll just use this one. Well, thank you, Eric, I think you called me an old fart. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'd rather be a whippersnapper myself, and that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. But I love Maine. I have the greatest respect for all the work you and all the folks in MoFCA have done, and I like hanging out with farmers, so I'm happy to be here. And I guess I'm going to take you a deep dive into Vern's brain today, so buckle up. We're going to do some some deep thinking about um, kind of how we got to be where we are today and where we want things to be in the future. thought I'd give you a little background about myself. Uh, it is true, my mother worked in a Twinkie factory when I was like 8 to 10 years old. She didn't actually make the Twinkies. She was a tour guide. Intercontinental bakers in Natick, Massachusetts. She wore a little blue uniform and took people around to see the vast machinery in there. And I would hang out after school and chow down on ding-dongs and ho hos and a variety of foods that probably if you looked at their names it would tell you you shouldn't be eating them and i think that's the first kind of little light that went off in my immature brain that something was amiss in the food system um and i continued to work in food actually washing dishes and nursing homes and cooking in uh, restaurants in the summer and running some summer camps so I guess I was on the way to becoming a lunch lady for my career um, but fortunately I started to wonder about about the food itself and kind of where where it was coming from and why why we were buying what we were buying and the, the preparation wasn't interesting me as much as um, the production so I went to UMass and studied plant and soil science and somewhere along the way I got myself to a uh, NOFA Vermont conference. I think it was up in Johnson, Vermont in uh, early 1980s. And that's really when I got the organic bug. I started to see the importance of agroecology in production and the importance of people sharing ideas and the wealth of knowledge in the community and sort of a process for um, coming to understand how to have uh, healthy food production. Um, and then I kind of need a break from the academic world and um, I had a partner and we bought a small farm together in western mass it was during the Carter years interest rates were 17% when we bought that farm if you can imagine so obviously we, we couldn't make any money farming so we had a landscape company in eastern massachusetts where we made the money to pay for the farm and i learned a lot uh for one thing we had a capital partner who needed to be losing money and once we started making money we had to sell the farm so that was sort of my first lesson in agricultural economics and um and also we were digging up you know vinca by the roadside in western mass and selling it for a fortune to homeowners in eastern mass and but we couldn't get that much for our blueberries so it was just Again, a lot of things were rattling around in my brain about something's not quite right in the design of this food system. Um, and the other thing I learned is that I wasn't a very good farmer. <laughs> so I probably need to go on to something else, and I decided that would be agricultural research. So I went to grad school and uh, did my dissertation on living mulches and trying to understand how to get uh, nitrogen into the system without using fertilizers and deal with weed control. and hung out with a great class of people. We had something called the Agricultural, um, the Ecological Agricultural Research Collective. And some folks that you know in Maine were in that, Mary Ann San Antonio, Matt Liebman, um, Rhonda Janke, out in uh, Kansas, but some really deep thinkers that helped me, again, frame my thoughts, wrap my mind around um, how uh, agroecological research could be conducted and, um, lucky for me, organic certification was just really getting going at that time. And NOFA New York needed some people to go visit farms and be the inspectors, so they came to these grad students in this research collective, and I volunteered to go out to farms and have my little checklist, and we were looking for things and talk but farmers started asking me questions. Well, what about this? And I was asking them questions. Hmm, why do you do that? Why do you do this? And I don't know. I need this piece of information. They just, Do you know what to do? And I said, no, I don't know, but I'll, I'll find out. And that kind of became my mantra for the next three decades in extension. Um, And then every time you go find something out for somebody, you have another little bit of, uh, another tool in your uh, bag of knowledge tricks and sometimes people think you're smart because you've been looking stuff up for a lot of people. Um, But the thing I realized was that I, I like the people part of agriculture and I love the science too, but really it was this interaction between knowledge and people and why people do what they do and you know I've come to realize it's 50% maybe of technology and knowledge and the other 50% is is social and human and people and you can throw all kinds of information at people but you have to be somewhat in tune to whether they're receptive to use it and where they're where they're coming from and every day I get to learn something so I feel really blessed in this job these are some new American farmers that are now uh, working around Burlington. These folks are from Burundi and growing African eggplants and trying to figure out how to do that in Vermont. So it's just who, who would have thought I'd be trying to advise on that? And then recently I've really just gotten into this idea of the importance of social capital in our community and the idea of, of creating what I call learning communities. So a long time ago I let go of this idea of being the expert because it's not possible for one person to hold all that knowledge. And actually, I look in this room, you know, the tens of thousands of years of farming experience at these tables is a kind of bizarre thing to think that someone like me is going to stand up here and just tell you what to do without having it be a two-way uh, conversation. So we've gotten into this a lot in Vermont with uh, face-to-face stuff, obviously, which Extension has been doing forever, but serves and, you know, newsletters where farmers can be part of the conversation. So this has um, all been really good. And um then for, uh, I guess about 10 years now, I've been coordinator of the SARE program, which has also been great to try and give people resources to explore their own ideas and really promote the idea of uh, farmers engaged with scientists in conducting research. Um, so we've learned a lot from that uh, role as well. But it is kind of ironic that I wasn't particularly good at farming and I ended up having a job advising farmers. <laughs> And I wasn't very good at research, and ended up coordinating, coordinating, the research grants program. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, reveling in my mediocrity at this point. <laughs> so, for me, personally, organic agriculture has left a big legacy because it's framed the kind of um, agricultural science I'm interested in being a part of, and my experience being an organic inspector for a little while. Kind of led me down the path to be working um, in extension but i want to talk about organic legacy writ large and a lot of what i'm going to talk about today is the little o organic i'm not talking about certification and specific you know nuances of what you can and can't do but the way uh, organic has helped people think about the world and i want to share with you some of the way i frame thinking about the world and why people do what they do and why I'm really going to focus in on principles today. Because I think a lot of the things you read, and even when I read the iPhone organic uh, statement of principles, they're really values. We should have a healthy environment. You know, People should be healthy. The world should be fair. They're not providing a lot of guidance. They're things that um, we believe are are worthy to strive for. But the principles which to me are things about a system that we have to support because they're, they're true in terms of what makes a system work. Now you're starting to get a little more guidance about what to do. And then we start to do stuff. Those are the practices. And then we get, now we get bogged down in the standards sometimes. So what's the letter of the law that's going to let you get a label or what's an actual rule that the government made that you have to follow? And, you know, we, I spend a lot of time down in that, that part, whether it's or, you know, nutrient management or whatever it might be, and it's important, but this is the part we really have to get right so that we're, <laughs> we're actually doing the practices that support those principles. Um, and I don't know, just as an example, you can say, what's the value? People should be educated. Okay, that's nice. I don't really know what that means. Well, a principle is all children should go to school until, you know, they're 16 or something. And then you get into practices. Well, public schools, charter schools, homeschooling, And now you can have standards. Oh, it should be this many days a year, and they should have these curriculum, and so just sort of frame that large. You can do the same thing with soil. You know, we should have a healthy environment. Well, having healthy soils is a key part of a healthy environment in a food system. Okay, what are the practices? Cover cropping, rotation, managing nutrients. That's fine. And now you start to say you shall rotate this many years. You shall manage your nutrients in such a way It's practices. So I'm framing what I'm going to talk about here, and I'm not going to get down in the weeds of... The standards and the practices part really talking about principles because my view has come to be if we don't get those right you know now we're doing a bunch of stuff that doesn't support what we actually value so these are my kind of personal take-homes about what I think organic agriculture organic farming um, is trying to honor in terms of principles and things that have been really valuable to all of our agriculture and food system because they're, you know, they're bleeding into that system. They're leaking in. It's this, these ideas aren't just self-contained in the organic community. And um, we all know the healthy soil uh, part and the connection to all the living things that, that's based on. Um, this whole idea of an agroecological system that we're trying to manage that is essentially based in biodiversity is, is critical sustainability based on not using up our resources over time and then the whole social piece which I don't really know what the right word is for there but there's something about it's it's more than just the money it's more than just the resources there's a whole human element in here that's critical um, to being happy to being fulfilled to having a meaningful existence and it's not just about you know being the last farmer left standing in a vicious marketplace so one legacy of organic to me is that these aspira- these principles have led to shared aspirations, and we've started to, you know, tweak them, giving them different names and focusing on different elements—the social or the environmental. But I really believe they're all honoring um, the same kind of of, of values, certainly aspirations, principles. And so I've—I don't know—over the years, I've just tired of the wordsmithing, and I don't want to ever go to another meeting where we try and debate the definition of sustainable agriculture um, because it's really important to then get to a, what are the principles behind that and which practices would support those. So one big problem we've had is since you know World War II, really, I think we've abandoned the discussion of what are the principles of a healthy food system. We've sort of just been led into this cartoony wor- world of... Uh, of marketing and kind of the subtext principles that aren't said out loud is, um, you know, it's really about the most yield, the most money, the most control. And we've kind of abandoned any kind of a spiritual or culinary or uh, community set of, uh, of principles. And people have just become more and more detached where, you know, this this is the way the conversation writ large in the mainstream media kind of takes place and obviously um, there's been a shift um, so I do get to travel a little bit and UVM has a great uh, semester abroad program in Oaxaca Mexico um, and I lead part of a food systems track there and one thing we do is go out to some villages that have been you know growing corn for 6,000 years and really produce all their own food and they have some elements of modernity um, but I just get some insights from going to systems that are so different than ours, but again, are, I think have some shared principles. But we had one experience where um, we went to the Federal Corn Research Institute, and the scientist is showing us all the charts of the yields, and here's the high input system, and they get 10 metric tons per hectare, and here's sort of a more indigenous system, but if you put the irrigation and the fertilizer to it, you can get four metric tons, and look at these poor villagers, they're you know only getting a ton and a half, and that's really a problem. And then that afternoon, we go out to this village, and the next day, we're hanging out, and, you know, it's this beautiful mountainside field, and there's some shaggy corn on the hillside and some sugarcane they're cutting, and coffee's amidst this jungle-like environment, and the kids are laughing and rolling in the the dried-up sugarcane, and the women come up from the village, and they're making lunch together. And the guys cut some cane for a few hours and sit down and drink the sugarcane beverage, and I just sort of had this... Thing hit me of well of course they get a ton and a half yield per acre <laughs> they're totally chill and they have this incredible quality of life and like why would they want to be putting the nutrients and the water this and out there hoeing and harvesting it's just not doesn't fit at all what their what their goals are or, or their principles about um having a quality of life and having downtime and not having these stresses so i think so much of of the principles we've um kind of inadvertently and unintentionally adopted sometimes have squeezed out um, the humanity of of the way we're going about things, and one of the problems, of course, is that people are so physically separated from most of their most of their food comes from. And I'm not talking about the people in this room; I'm talking about your average citizen um, eating broccoli or buying frozen broccoli doesn't ever see what an industrial broccoli field in California looks like. Um, they don't get to go to the broiler houses and in Delaware and um, see what it takes to, you know, make chicken breast at $2.99 a pound. They don't see where most of the bread wheat is coming from, and they certainly don't see what it takes to make a cheap hamburger. So you're left, you know, with choices um, that don't support your values.
0: You are listening to Common Ground Radio, and today we are playing a recording of the keynote address from MOFCA's 2016 Farmer to Farmer Conference. Vern Grubinger from the University of Vermont is speaking about the legacy of organic agriculture. We are not taking calls on today's show. Thank you.
2: So the good news is, of course, there's been a, a sea change, sorry, an awakening from wherever we were that, I don't know, at the at the bottom of that pit in the Was it the 50s or the 60s? Or a complete unintentional and everybody should have TV dinners and Tang and one, Jello. I used to love that stuff when I was a kid. It makes the little layers when you pour it in. Anyway. uh, So we're trying to communicate with consumers and talk to them about social issues and environmental issues and food safety and animal well-being. And of course, this is a bit of a challenge because there's so many issues and consumers are not necessarily agriculturally literate and it can get confusing. So I think that's been the, kind of the power behind the local food movement, right? It's it's really a proxy for a lot of other things. This is what I came to realize after thinking about this long and hard. You know, Is it proximity per se that people really value or that even should be a principle? I mean, I'm all for growing things as close to home as possible, but we are in a in a global food system. And then, yeah, when I go to Oaxaca and see these folks growing coffee and that that's the only way they get any cash or chocolate or bananas or all the things I like to eat or um, some things that are tougher to, to grow around here and maybe should be from a few hundred miles away. It, is it proximity that we want to honor? Or really, that's just kind of a tidy bucket to put all this stuff into for consumers um, to say, yeah, I'm I'm feeling comfortable with this kind of food because I know there's, all of these, you know, stewardship and some social uh, awareness right in there. So when you even start to look at labels here, it's interesting that you get these things that are sort of regional and not necessarily tightly defined by boundaries, then you have things that are just statewide, clearly bounded, national, and then this unspecified, just just be local, whatever that means. so it's, it's a fascinating thing, what's going on. And I'm all for the local and regional food mo- movement. I'm just trying to think a little more critically about um, what we're trying to achieve here and what, what are the principles behind these things, other than if it's just proximity, that I don't think that's going to really get us where we want to go. So the way I see it, there's some, some key things we have to acknowledge if we want to keep the legacy going. We want it to be more powerful into the future. And one of them is this disconnect from people are investing their food dollars in things they don't actually believe in and if they could see what was behind the curtain maybe they would pay a dollar or two dollars more for a hamburger that wasn't from a giant feedlot and certainly the folks you are selling to are coming to some of that awareness They're, oh there's when i buy from these local and regional producers that are doing the right thing as far as food production i'm making an investment in the system that honors um, the principles I believe in. And since it isn't all, you know, the direct market transparency is one thing, but obviously you can't connect with every source of your food. So this idea of greater transparency in the things that are not direct is really important to me. And I'll talk about some some labeling um, ideas in a moment. And the last thing to me is having new measures of success. So we know it's not just all about the money. What are other things that we would like to be quantifying to show progress towards this whole multitude of um, principles that we want to fulfill? So yes. I think that organic and local are both addressing these challenges and in part by you know acting on these principles, even if not explicitly, not explaining them all to producers because it would take having 20 labels on your on your products. but um, I think it's good to go through and think about well, what what are some of these principles and uh, welcome your feedback and if you're agreeing with the ones that I'm going to outline. So one of them is that direct connections are a good thing and of course yes, it creates new markets for, for often smaller uh, producers and ways to get started um, but it's this whole idea of um, creating agricultural literacy among consumers. It's a way for people to start to you know, see the ebbs and flows of a season, and um, I know I just got my close of the season letter from my CSA farmer, and she lays out her budget. These are my costs, these are my expenses, this is what I'm taking home. I mean, suddenly, coughing up $525 felt like a whole different (laughs) thing when I see, wow, she is working really hard, she has a lot of expenses, you know, she's making a living, but she's not making much. I mean, so it just took it out of sort of the way it's often portrayed, which is, oh, this is all about me, What's the value of the food I'm getting every week how does it compare to the supermarket prices I mean so here's this really good person I've known for 20 years and been a member of a farm it's getting into this whole you know social capital piece and there's a fabric in there I'm investing in someone I know in a farm I cherish and um, it just makes it a much more robust calculation than just like what it, where could I, where could I buy that food at a different price and it seems, Odd to have to even say this in the richest nation on earth, um, but it's true. There's millions of people that don't even have enough food, let alone access to good food. And um, this is really big on the radar screen. I know over in Vermont, the whole food food access issue too. Of how do we make this whole local and regional and organic food system more um, equitable, more accessible to? Uh, low-income people, people who feel culturally uh, alienated by by this, by our, <laughs> by our community, um, and I know, you know, I know people in Brattleboro would say, "Oh, I would never go to the food co-op." And try and push them a little, to say why they can't really say it clearly, but basically they're uncomfortable. It's not their people. It's not kind of the signals that they find reassuring, and I don't think we've thought you know, hard enough about how to. Um, embrace a wider demographic in our movement. You know, who wants to put stuff in their body that's been produced in a place that's polluted? It just makes no sense. And so much of our large scale agricultural production is oriented to mitigation. So it's kind of the by design it creates pollution and we come up with all these NRCS cost shares and other, you know, systems to um, reduce the amount of nutrient loss into water or the uh, off-gassing of odors or greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so I think we kind of have it backwards of get away from the mitigation and move towards design of systems that don't require mitigation. But we put a lot more money into helping people that have problems rather than supporting people to farm in a way that doesn't create problems to begin with. And this hit me, you know, one meeting I was at. And again, I'm not criticizing people. They have their, their paradigms and worldviews, and are trying to do a good, good job. And again, I think share the values, but a bunch of pretty big dairy farmers with a lot of cows and a lot of excess manure, a lot of nutrients going into the water and talking about the, whether it's the manure pits or the digester or all the technical solutions. And, you know, there was one guy there who was talking about, oh, well, maybe I'll downsize by a huge amount of cows and make cheese. It just kind of hit me, well, we have a lot more help for the guys that have too many nutrients going into the water because there's too many cows, and then there's too much milk, and they aren't making enough money versus saying, oh, a whole mitigation strategy is don't have so many cows. I can only say that because I'm not in Vermont right now. <laughs> uh, but it's just that, that it's kind of the design of the system doesn't really come up. It's more how do we you know, do something after you've already farmed the way you farm to try and reduce the problem. You know, if, if any of you have been to large feedlots, and then you go see the way you and your colleagues are farming, and yeah, this is it, uh, it. Paul Harlow's and the pigs jumping up in the fields of alfalfa, and chickens grazing happily. It's just you know, after you see Food ink and then you see something like this, um, and I think this is one reason why local meats are really taking off. And you know, what I tell people is. Pay more for good meat, eat less of it, <laughs> and reap all the benefits of your own health and the environmental health. But um, yeah, why do we have to have a be able to buy a three-dollar hamburger x days a week? And then this is something that's an absolute to me: is the future of food production depends on, depends on stewarding the natural resources. And you know, I have mixed feelings about the kind of regulations that are coming into place. Um, got pretty strict water quality regs. Just uh, came to pass in Vermont. No, Massachusetts has them too, but it's interesting before there's even any enforcement. I was up in northern Vermont, big dairy country there, and there's cover crops all over the place too. So um, how we get to getting people to want to do the protection that makes sense is a separate question, but clearly we got to take care of the soil and water. And then if we want any kind of future at all in our food system, got to have young farmers finding their place in there. And so to me, the blessing is we have lots of young people that want to farm, and they want it's meaningful, it's authentic. That's not our problem. We'd be kind of dead in the water without that. But it's all these other issues around that access to land and capital and markets that people are working on, but I, to me, this is really rises to a uh, top priority if we've really got to make sure that these folks get a chance to succeed. And you know how many, how many values? you see in this picture. I mean, you have solar-powered food production, you've got ecosystem services, you've got a platform for tourism, which is way more economically valuable in Vermont than agriculture, probably Maine too. Um, you've got the whole cultural, historical connection, and just the, I don't know, for me, kind of just the spiritual. <laughs> positive net effect when I drive through landscapes like this, and then I go you know, not too far down the hill to the most fertile soil in my neighborhood, which is now the strip malls. I don't get the same feeling. And um, I don't know how to quantify that or put it into words, but I do worry, any of you, you know, you drive around the country, you fly to different cities and just see what we're doing to the landscapes. Um, you know, the end, the build-out vision of that is not a good one. So some of all of these changes have to do with bringing our young people in early and certainly Farm to School's doing a great job of helping kids understand that um, what they put in their body matters and one way to get there is by having them think harder about well where does this stuff come from and to connect with the people that are growing it and not have it be kind of a mindless exercise ruled by advertising and immediate taste bud reaction was actually my son's like second grade class 20 years ago keep reusing it didn't get anyone to sign a release or anything
0: (laughs) Um,
2: and then there's the um, whole idea to me what I'm going to talk about a little bit more is distributed systems so I believe we have a much greater food security in the country by having production dispersed and it may not be the most quote-unquote efficient Um, but not only are we um, you know creating local jobs and getting some multiplier effect um, you're you're basically moving towards value chains instead of supply chains and this is a really important concept to me supply chain just plugs in all the ingredients it needs along the way to get to the final point at the end. And even if it's having lettuce every day in the supermarket or if you're making whatever, crackers, and you need flour and salt and spices. Um, but the value chain builds relationships among those producers um, from the from the farm to the retailer. And they start to have more of a partnership and try and take care of each other. And um, the quality goes up and the consistency goes up and new ideas emerge. and um, so this is something I think is really important for when we're not able to do things at the very direct market scale, which is going to still be probably most of our food system, um, that we've got to start um, thinking about how value chains get structured rather than uh, simply supply chains. And I will tout—I uh, well, got a copy of a book I wrote here with my colleague, Farms, Food, and Community, and we delve into that issue and others. And one thing we do is case studies in there to try and help us understand it when we were writing it, but others too. And there's a great example from a a guy I knew from Sarah out in Washington, Carl Coopers, who started Shepherd's Grain. So he was a commodity wheat grower. They just grew wheat, took their price, shipped it off. That was that. And then they started getting into no-till, and they were sort of talking about, hey, we're environmental stewards. And um, then they started talking to local, bakers and people that were buying flour for different purposes and finding out some other attributes, varieties and things they wanted. Long story short, this Shepherd's Grain Partnership is a, a group of farmers that has all of this give and take in the marketplace with, uh, with the grain buyers. And so they're not in a commodity system anymore, they're in a sort of a regional wholesale grain distribution. But he said something to me that was really interesting, which was they used to always ride this, this roller coaster of prices on wheat. And at one meeting, they sat down with these local wheat buyers, the bakers and such, and you know showed them their financial information. They said, well, this is what it costs us to grow it, and this is what we need to make a living. And the buyers were all, oh, okay, we get it. And he said it was like this amazing thing that totally changed their whole the whole economics of their marketing, that they actually had a partner in this. You're going to grow us good wheat, we're going to pay you a fair price. We now know what that price is going to be pretty consistently. It actually helps us too. And yep, we're going to have to ignore that when wheat is in the toilet and we could get it cheaper somewhere else, we're not going to do that. But also, if there's a spike, we're protected from you going crazy on us and, and gouging us. But So to me, that's that's a value chain relationship instead of a supply chain. Anybody recognize the company that owns all of these brands? Nestle, right? Biggest food company in the world. Last time I looked, it was like 110 billion dollars. Um, so, you know, corporate oligopolies dominate the food system. They dominate a lot of things. But from the inputs, where you, you know, we just had the merger of, I can't even remember two of the biggest uh, seed, com- seed and chemical companies in the in the world, and um, to the processors, um, to the branders and distributors, to the retailers. So they're getting bigger and bigger and buying each other up and merging. And oftentimes, they aren't delivering us particularly healthy food, and they aren't really interested in supporting uh, producer prices. So I'm not pretending that these things are just going to go away. We're going to have some kind of revolution, and there'll be no you know, large corporate powers in the marketplace. But what I'm arguing for is that we have to have some kind of a balance and we have to have policies that allow the niches, the niche people, the alternative to survive. And I think of this as ecological refugia. So in ecology, you know, you have little places, you have a glacier come through and it wipes everything out, but there's a little place where the forest survived and the rest of the forest regrows out from that. So when I get pushback from people who say, oh, you guys in New England, you're all these small niche producers, I say, well, first of all, there's a lot of people involved out in the landscape and that's what keeps a vital working landscape if you want healthy rural communities where you have marginal lands and mountains and stuff you've got to support small production um, but also if you want new and different ideas that will allow us to grow when you know i'm not gonna say even the thing goes off the rails but when there's problems you, you can't have this monolithic system where everyone's doing everything like cookie cutter uh, industry so i i think it's a really important thing um, to be intentional about you know, limiting the power of corporations to dominate the food system. So let's talk about some things we can do. I want to talk about the way I think about relationships is the structure is horizontal or vertical. And this kind of deals with this power in the marketplace. And some things we could do to really start to drill down into how agroecology can be optimized and I've mentioned this idea of figuring out new ways to measure if we're making progress or not. Um, and the analogy I use there is, you know, you take your kids to the the doctors when they're little and you get this little graph. You, you know what I'm talking about? Where you have the, you know, the height and the weight and there's kind of the 90% lines and you want to, you don't want to be an outlier. They're going to be short or skinny or whatever. So you track that. But, you know, you get to a certain point and that, that information isn't really very good guidance anymore. like. I don't know, they're 22 years old, <laughs> like one of my sons. It's like, okay, he's, he's kind of on his own with managing that, but now there's other measures, right? I mean, I don't know, when do you start measuring blood pressure or cholesterol or, you know, happiness? <laughs> so there's a, we're kind of stuck, I think, a lot of times in the food system. Oh, we're just gonna, we're gonna look at yield and net returns and kind of just chug along with that forever. And it isn't really robust enough to manage a system.
0: You are listening to Common Ground Radio, and today we are playing a recording of the keynote address from MOFCA's 2016 Farmer to Farmer Conference. Vern Grubinger from the University of Vermont is speaking about the legacy of organic agriculture. We are not taking calls on today's show. Thank you.
2: So, I've come to the conclusion it's all about relationships and meaningful relationships, and we're lucky that we have a lot more than just the direct market ways to do that with all the social media and the potential for transparent labeling and the sharing communities that can be created both in person and then magnified with electronic means. I mean, we have a lot of capacity to create more transparent and honest relationships. So the way I tried to frame this is the relationships I think we need more to are horizontal. So they're characterized by a lack of anonymity, They're transparent. There are many little pieces working together, they're distributed, and they have something I like to think of as economies of scope rather than scale. It isn't just about how big do you have to be to knock this widget out at the lowest cost, it's how many valuable things can you get out of doing this. And so we were talking about oilseed production earlier at the table. I mean, that's one thing that always intrigued me about that. Well, you grow some canola, or sunflower, or soy, and you can squeeze it for oil, which you could use for fuel or you could use for culinary purposes and then you get a seed mill and the seed mill can be uh... an animal feed or it can be an organic fertilizer or if it's spoiled you could pelletize it and burn it as a fuel and then you get a community and maybe they want to grow the crop and just sell it to you or maybe they want the oil back for fuel or maybe they want the feed back or there was the guy I'm working with, I'll show you his picture um, with an on-farm biodiesel plant, he had a cosmetic manufacturer come to him and say oh I want the sludge that settles out from the oil after you squeeze it all, because I put that in my face cream or something. And the farmer is a really great guy. He's like, I can't sell you that stuff. I throw it away. Uh, but he, you know, just starts to tell you get this fabric of products, this fabric of relationships to those products in the marketplace, and that's just much more durable than we're going to have a giant biodiesel plant. We're going to knock out, you know, the oil to the to the fuel companies. All the glycerin will go to the soap companies, and then pretty soon that stuff will all be in the toilet market-wise because there's too much of it. And then when I drive my truck to the gas station, I can't even buy biodiesel because it's all going away somewhere to wherever they're making it and selling it. It's a very different design. So these things are characterized by direct markets, um, cooperative efforts, and as I mentioned, value chains, versus the vertical network, right? There's a power at the top making decisions. And these things trickle down to middle level managers or distributors or something that follow those instructions and the rest of us consume it. <laughs> and it's very hard to to push back. I mean, it can happen, right? Somebody, somebody said enough to McDonald's that we're not going to buy genetically modified potatoes 20 years ago and the new leaf potato went away when they said, "Hey, we're not gonna, we're not going to buy that. We're worried about consumer reaction." So it's not like there's no pushback, but usually there's very little um, power here. In part because things are anonymous; you don't know where the stuff's coming from, you don't know who's deciding, um, and the way these things are analyzed are, you know, quarterly profits, annual profits, things like that. Very reductionist measures, rather than all of the costs that typically get externalized. So we don't know how much energy is used. In a product or what the greenhouse gas emissions are of that product or whether people are being paid in a fair way all the things we value and care about that should be principles of a healthy food system are hidden from us so that has to change and i have a slide in there we need a balance of, of more of both of them is what i'm saying i'm not saying we're not going to have any vertical networks but we need a mix and i used to say one example is we need a vertical networks for tractors right we we like to till things takes a big factory somewhere to make it and a distribution system. And they have salespeople and parts and all that. And they're probably in Japan or the Midwest or wherever they are. And we're not really geared up to do the tractor thing. But then along came Ogan Tractor and Horace uh, uh, is here from Horace Clemens. And so they have this idea of open source manufacturing for tractors. They'll build a platform. You can fix it with your own wrenches once you take it from them you never come back for parts or service you do it yourself and you can modify it and hook and so see you can even horizontalize tractors i'm very excited about that and what you get are these distributed systems and i was trying to think of an analogy it's, it's kind of like certain microbial communities right you have a some group of bacteria they don't just get bigger and bigger and bigger until they explode <laughs> Oh, they multiply and split off and they're sort of all alike but they're a little bit different and then one's a little better than the other and it starts to have an advantage and multiply more so this is the way i look look at it too instead of ending up with one giant organic vegetable farm in china producing all of our frozen vegetables um man i'd much rather have lots of little farms talking to each other figuring things out i mean all you have to do you go to any session here like the only way we're going to really figure out how to kill weeds is to have farmers trying all the new knowledge that gets on earth and experimenting and innovating. Um, now, there's obviously a balance. You do get some efficiencies. So it's back to every person isn't going to grow all of their own food. But uh, what what is the optimal size? I don't know. But that's just having this idea in mind that there's a, there is an advantage to what would be called inefficient because it's actually um, much more beneficial for the number of brains that are paying attention to something and thinking through what the possible uh, answers are. Oh, well, That was the slide that was supposed to go first. I like arrows that go in lots of directions. So let's end by talking about how do we put principles in action and what kind of food system legacy do we want for organic? agriculture and our food system in general and is it some futuristic thing where it's all hydroponic nutrient solutions with valves and buzzers and we don't even need soil or people and robots will harvest all this inside dark illuminated buildings. I mean, there are people who think that, um, that that's, you know, it's kind of creepy to me, but not like nobody should ever do this. It's fine if they want to dub around, but um, does it honor the principles that we talked about earlier? I don't think so. So one thing I think is critical is transparency. I would like to see point-of-origin labeling on everything. Um, and I think we need to really push back on that. It's got to be kept secret from us so that you know the entities can mix and match and throw the stuff in that's cheapest in the value chain. And today, it's a Maine carrot. And tomorrow, it's a California or China carrot. Um, I know it's harder for them, but it's critically important. And Australia has an awesome model for this. They passed a labeling laws recently. There's a minimum threshold of kind of saying if things are made in Australia or not or partially. And then there's all these optional labels, so it gets a little crazy where you get your TV dinner and it's made with peas and carrots and onions from Australia and you know flour from Sweden and there's like five countries. But hey, why not? I think we're all big boys and girls with big brains, I can actually handle that information. And if I don't want to read it, I don't have to. Um, But it will add a little bit of cost to the system and let people make much more intentional labeling, uh, uh, purchasing decisions. And it also is interesting to me how certain things we've already chosen to do that with. So like in Vermont, you know, maple syrup is up on a pedestal. God forbid you should ever violate the labeling of maple syrup by saying something from outside Vermont was Vermont-made, or even the standards. So they're all over this one product, but really that's about it. Um, the rest of it, you know, we have some laws of whether it's 50% um, made in Vermont or not, if to be able to get a uh, used to have seal of quality and things like that. So I would like to see that level of rigor applied to lots of products, and then not just point of origin, but ingredients. Why can't we be told? What is in the food, um, and GMOs obviously is a huge battle cry. But even you know years ago there was a law that was on the table. They were going to label what was in beer, and that got shot down by the, the beverage industry. Um, so there's just a it's just a weird thing here that this isn't a fundamental right to be able to know what am I putting in my body. So how do we get some of that power back in the marketplace? Well, by working together, especially when you get away from the direct marketing, to have enough volume and enough economic clout to um, participate and it was really interesting for the book interviewing a uh, sustainability director at Cabot Cheese so like in Vermont with all its artisan cheesemakers and Maine too you guys have farmers that sell to Cabot and you have artisan cheesemakers you know he's telling me well Cabot is perceived as this jo- Goliath it's this huge cheese companies like actually we're a gnat <laughs> it's like for us to get space on supermarket shelves against the crafts and stuff for the world um, so we're, we're kind of in the middle looking at the smaller community who thinks we're gigantic and then we look at the national cheese market and and we're um, really tiny but at least by um, taking milk from 1200 farms or whatever it is and making products and getting them in the marketplace you know their their mission is to support their farmer producers and I, I'm Growers I work with don't like them because they have conventional farms and they don't honor organic principles, but um, you know I'm not in the judgment business arguing about who, who's um, got it all right or who doesn't, but but the idea of bringing farmers together to get into the larger food supply and still um, have some control over their destiny in the marketplace is really huge. And you see this a lot, like down in Oaxaca, it's really interesting. The, the farmer co-ops of, like, how would you sell coffee as a little villager to the, the Europeans and Americans that want it and will pay premiums for just about everything, organic, bird-friendly, women-owned co-ops. You know, uh, envir- there's a Audubon, there's environmental, um, and they're actually kind of pissed off about it. <laughs> it's like, you guys are telling us all this stuff to do, and an inspector comes down here and tells me i got to pick up, you know, plastic bags that have blown into my <laughs> coffee jungle. It's like, that's just weird. And then I had a really interesting experience with the whole FSMA food safety thing where, you know, everyone's kind of freaking out. The government's going to come down on us and kill all our small farms. And, um, of course, FSMA came out and a whole group of farms are not going to be covered by it. In fact, the vast majority of them in Vermont. And uh, so we kind of flipped it. Well, your markets are still at risk because if FSMA goes in with the big guys and people start asking, what's your food safety plan? You, you won't be able to tell them anything. You don't want to say, oh, we're exempt. So the... Uh, it got flipped to the growers to say, "Well, what would you do?" And so you'd basically take this food safety um, construct, which most people get. Yeah, wash your hands, don't get manure on the food, keep things cold, be able to track things. It's it's not really that objectionable. And they created their own 18 standards. Here's what you have to fill. We post the stuff online, and they're reviewing each other's farm folders and. Basically, gonna, the growers are going to credit themselves as you are doing your due diligence to have food safety. And this just hit me. Wow, this all regulations should be like this. You say, here's what we want to achieve. Here are some basic principles. Like, How would you do it? How could you do it? And maybe there's some back and forth with regulators and stuff, but it's way better than, oh, we figured it out. It's actually really flawed, but now you're required to do it. Um, I'm a big proponent of that we have to... Uh, agriculture has to lead the way as far as fossil fuel uh, independence. And so the weird thing is, the prices go up and down. We're either freaked out or complacent. This is like a constant cycle. And other things don't go down, like atmospheric CO2. (laughs) So you know the two are connected. Um, So I think we have a moral obligation to dial back the fossil fuels in agriculture. And um, there are a lot of people doing great things. We talked about growing our own liquid fuels, using oilseed crops. Um, this was the farmer I worked with on the right there, John Williamsons. been making all his own fuel and fuel for others in his community and um, so I started thinking about like local fuel sheds. We could be setting these up. Not that we you know we don't need liquid fuels, we don't have to use them. Um, he's got solar drying for, for the seeds and for grain crops. Um, big fan of PV. I like to see more of them on buildings and out in fields. Marginal lands is one thing, but like down in the Connecticut River Valley, they're starting to take up some good ag land, that's not good. We got a lot of biomass out there and a lot of it isn't really suitable for, you know, lumber, so we could be burning it in a clean way. We've done some work with farmers promoting that. And then of course, passive systems, energy efficiency and conservation um, are huge. And um, yeah, we're seeing a lot more passive ventilation of barns and passive growing of greens. And I think we need to really promote, grass-based livestock production for you know it's again it's so interesting you go to these one dairy farm down the road and there's all this mitigation and all this money going in to help and then you know you go to mike eastman there's nothing to mitigate (laughs) he's never received money for there's no exposed soil um there's a lot lower costs and then there's all the health benefits for people and animals i don't think this gets enough credit out of the places vermont maine northwest where it's uh highly touted, and then we have a big push on to figure out how to get more of our nitrogen from legumes, especially because, you know, we've been using so much manure in vegetable production um, that our phosphorus is very high, and it's become kind of a mindless system. Hey, we just throw on this much composted animal, uh, chicken or cow manure, without really looking at the nutrient balances. So, this is uh, something that's going to be really important, and we've got some great seed companies in Maine and in Vermont that are addressing local needs just like with the regulatory uh, model I think we could have a whole new model for food safety systems we've kind of have this principle that you have to be um, large to be able to be sanitary and I don't think that's true we haven't applied our scientific capacity to figure out how to have small but safe handling systems and I'm convinced we can do it with produce uh, with slaughtering sorry about that and uh, you know cheese making um, so it's just understanding the microbes in a different way maybe it's not just about eradication I really had my eyes open when I visited Jasper Hill uh, cheese artisan cheese company They're they're ma- helping a lot of farmers make high quality cheese but it's really about microbial management not eradication especially when you're making something like a cheese or anything that requires um, microbial activity and if we can just be smarter about that and way more open-minded, um, the outcome's gonna be so much better than just constantly trying to kill all these things, which is impossible to begin with. And then finally, I'll end with a few pet peeves of mine. I mean, one is, how can, how can good farmland not be recognized as, how can farming not be recognized as the best and highest use of good land? And you just see this over and over. And even in my town, we have a town plan. And it says all this wonderful, nice stuff. When push comes to shove, they develop it. And sometimes they squeeze a little bit of farmland to the side and save that. But you know, this is a completely limited resource. It's one area I'd say um, we're actually failing miserably at. If you look at um, American Farmland Trust data and like every state, year after year after year, we lose good farmland. It's not, it's not getting better. We have a huge effort in in many states, including Vermont for land conservation, and thank goodness for that it's preserved a lot of land but you know ten percent of the best uh, farmland in the state at this point, which is a huge amount but going into the future, you don't get back the stuff that you did did this to and then you know I have this idea of there's certain words we certain words we protect and honor and you can't you know you can't say you're a University without being accredited. I don't know, maybe you can online, but you're not supposed to. Um, you know, I was getting my hair cut, and the woman's telling me, Oh, we got sued because we used the word barber and we didn't have a barber's license. We're only a haircutter. I thought, That's interesting. But you can use the word farm, even if you're a multi billion dollar company. And the problem I have with this is I was out shopping one day with my wife, and she pulls this package of such-and-such chop from Smithfield Farm or something. It's got a picture of a happy farm couple on the back raising pork, and she's like, oh, look, I found this local pork. I was like, oh, that is the biggest packing house in the world. (laughs) It's also now owned by China. Um, So just, just not right. You know, there's been a lot of talk about pollinators, and went to some conference, and they're really talking to people that are practicing much more scorched earth policy than organic farmers have. Like you've got lots of ecosystem services, including pollinator habitat areas that we're not, we don't quantify, we don't talk about it. Um, taking water quality samples coming off of farms and streams. What's what's in there for dissolved oxygen? Or you know, I'm thinking out loud here, but there's a ton of stuff we could be measuring a to know where we're at and if things are getting better or not. And what this article from Reginald was doing was actually comparing conventional systems and organic systems. And so you have a graph there that kind of shows who's got the, the best uh, reach in either of these directions. And I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, you know, we're better than you kind of approach. My view is um, to sustainability and um, improvement is it's like you go, you know, medicine, you go into the doctor's office, they don't say, wow, the last patient before you was a lot healthier. You should be like them. <laughs> It's more like, well, what were your what was your data last year, and what is it this year, and what do we want it to be next year? So it's about continual improvement for your own farms, and for um, organic agriculture in general, and as a result, for our entire food system, society, and the world. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: This is Common Ground Radio, and today we've been listening to uh, the keynote address from MOFCA's 2016 Farmer to Farmer Conference, given by Vern Grubinger from the University of Vermont, speaking about the legacy of organic agriculture. So we have come to the end of the show for today. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in, and thank you to Amy for engineering today's show. I'm your host, CJ Walk. And this is Common Ground Radio, which is brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and is heard here at 10 a.m. on the first Friday of every month right here on WERU. So stay tuned for On the Wing next with Joel Raymond. Support for WERU comes from two